you would, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Well, we come this Father's Day. Happy Father's Day to all of you gentlemen this morning. We come to Father's Day to the seventh and final Sunday in John chapter 1. In Pastor J terms, we are flying through John chapter 1. There is something different in each genre of of, of biblical uh, literature. Uh, the pastoral letters lend themselves to sermons that are, are just one verse or one word. Um, some narrative forms uh, don't as much, but uh, boy, I've enjoyed being in John chapter 1 over these past uh, several weeks. There's a, a robust Christology here that you, you can't miss. Again, John, uh, Jesus rather, is the one that was in the beginning. Uh, he was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. Was without Him was not anything made that was made. He is the pre-incarnate Son of God. And we talked about the reality that uh, these particular verses really lend themselves in a Trinitarian uh, doctrine. That there are those four statements. Uh, that, that comprise a clear explanation of the doctrine of the Trinity. That is, that God is one, God is the Father, God is the Son, and God is the Spirit. Here we also see uh, that Jesus, again, is the one through whom all things were created. He is the light of the world, the one who has not been overcome by the darkness. Every one of us that's set in this room today... Uh, we could testify to the reality that at particular points in our life, we've been overcome by the darkness. Jesus doesn't share that testimony with us. But then in the full-orbed expression here of John chapter 1, verse 14, we find that Jesus, in verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us, and, he, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Again, there's Trinitarian language full of grace and truth, that Jesus is the one, full of grace and truth, full of salvation and revelation. He is the only one that can save, and He is the only one that can reveal the living God. But then we also saw this Trinitarian Christological theology. We also saw the reality of a witness coming in the form of of John in verses 6 through 8, there was a man sent from God he, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John was sent from God. John was a witness to the light that we all might believe. And it just so happens, as we dealt with last week, that in verses 19 through 42, that's exactly what those verses are about. That, that John is a witness, that he is witnessing to the light. If you look in verses 29 and 32, 34, we see him witnessing there and that all might believe. Verse 37, John is not the light, but he has come to make the good confession 
to point us to the light. So let us continue in light of John's witnessing to us in the Gospel of John. Would you do honor the reading of God's Word and stand as we begin in verse 35 this morning. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. His first, he first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, Bethsaida, excuse me, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. And Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God descending and ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is God's word to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence this morning so thankful that in this dark world you have chosen by your divine decree to reveal Christ to us. Father, that none of us would would ultimately come and receive Christ if you had not first birthed us anew. And so, Father, we come with grateful hearts this morning. We ask that you would use each one of our lives as witness to your glory. We pray, Father, that you would continue to convict us of our sin and to mold us into the image of Christ, that we would be more like Christ. Father, would you write the words that we have just read and their meaning according to your Spirit on all of our hearts. In Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. It's interesting here how John uses this, this, this little phrase of transition. And the next day, we see in, in verse 29, and then in verse 35, the next day again, and then in verse 43, the next day. And so here we are at, at one of those next days, those, those transition points in 
verse 35. And what we find is an account of, again, John doing what he says that he will do. John leads his disciples to the Lord. He bears witness about the Lord. He says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, we have to ask this question. Who are these disciples? We see in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. So, so one was Andrew. And Gospels are written in retrospect. All of the Gospels are written after the fact in a way to point us to things about what happened during the life and the ministry of Christ that we would not have seen had God not inspired these Gospels. That's what's going on here. And what he wants us to see about Andrew is, is that the most important thing about Andrew is who his brother was. The, the interesting thing about Andrew, as John leans into what he's going to tell us about Andrew, the very first thing is he, he, he makes a connection that, that Simon Peter, Simon, the one that we know more as Peter because of Jesus naming him Peter, the most important thing about, about this one, Andrew, is who he is related to. And most importantly in that relationship, we see in this text, in verse 41, that Andrew was the one who first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. What did Andrew do as a primary means of worship when he understood that Jesus was the Messiah? When John had witnessed to him, what was his reflex? His reflex was to go find his brother it's interesting to think about that reality. That, that when the Bible talks about Andrew, and, and I don't think if Andrew was here this morning, he'd feel slighted by John's writing here. That the, 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 the thing that we need to know before we know everything else is that Andrew went and found his brother. Now, sibling rivalry might tell us something different. But that's not the case here. You, you see, we live in a society, in a world, where we're known more for what we're what we wear, for where we've been educated, uh, because of the job that we have, um, because of our moral standing, maybe our political persuasion. We're known by facts that, quite frankly, friends, are subpar to this one reality in Andrew's life. And that is the reality that when he came to know who Jesus was, the first thing that he did was go find his brother. He wanted to lead his brother to see this Messiah. You see the priority, again, of, of, of Andrew in verse 41. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. Remember, this is a time of really substantial messianic anticipation. The, the nation of Israel is looking for the consolation of their entire nation. They are looking for the one who is going to sit on David's throne. The one who will ultimately undo the oppression of the Roman government over the nation. And, and so there is this, this consistent preoccupation with, is the Messiah here? Is the Messiah here? Is the Messiah here? We don't feel that the same way they did because we're not living in their social and political context being oppressed by the Roman government. But they felt it. It had been a long time since they had heard from the prophets. It had been a long time since God had spoken to them. And they were wanting to see the one that God had promised. 
And so in verse 41, we find this interesting phrase, and I think that we just kind of gloss over it. He first found his brother, and then he said to him, We have found the Messiah. Now, we've all seen the Christmas plays and the flannel graphs and the various ways that we understand the nativity scene and the coming of Christ. And so I think this is lost on us a little bit. But Andrew went out and, and John had pointed him to Jesus and now he's following Jesus. And so he goes back and he finds his brother Simon and he tells him, we found the Messiah. Now, now the Jewish people at this time are, are again thinking that this Messiah is going to come and He's going to set them free politically. And so there's got to be in the back of, of, and this isn't explicit in the text, but in the back of Peter's mind when Andrew shows up, wait a minute, you think you found the Messiah? Don't you think we would know if the Messiah had come? Wouldn't He come in glory? Wouldn't He come in political strength? Wouldn't He come and make Himself known? Well, wouldn't, wouldn't it be obvious, Andrew, if you had found the Messiah? Wouldn't everyone be talking about it? I mean, if the Messiah really has come into the world, won't we know Him? Well, John's already told us the, the answer to that, and that is the world didn't know Him, and He came to His own people, and His own people had rejected Him. The world did not receive Him. I think that we here in the finding uh, it is a statement about the disciples of John that John had witnessed to Jesus, and so now John's disciples know who the Messiah is. We we see the budding reality of people coming to understand who Christ is. They had they had found him by the witness of John. I, I mean, we have to come to this word and, and kind of pause for a second. Is found the right word? Uh, we have found the Son of God. We have found the Messiah. We, we found the Christ. Is that, is that the right verb to use? Now, that's the case of what we have here. Andrew ultimately follows Christ, and as he follows Him, he goes and he gets his brother. And what we find very interesting in this passage is look at verse 42. Jesus, excuse me, he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, Petros, rock. Now, we all in the back of our mind when we, when we read that verse have to have, if, if, we're, if we have spent time in the Word of God, our minds immediately go to Matthew chapter 16 and the Petrine confession you'll remember these words in, in Matthew now, and, and think about this John's not finished with his first chapter yet in his gospel Matthew takes 16 chapters to get to this reality but but John puts this again John is writing just to one two punch and knock us to the ground with his Christology John wants to make no bones about his theological understanding of the identity of Christ and His preeminence in all things, and the reality that He is the Messiah. And so He begins in verses 1-3, through 3, pointing to the reality that He was in the beginning. But then here, He gets to the very heart of the matter in, in 
as he sees Peter for the first time, acknowledging you are Simon, the son of John, you will be called Cephas, which means Peter, which means rock. Now again, that takes us to Matthew chapter 16. And and later we're going to get to John chapter 6. You'll remember Matthew chapter 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, Listen to these words. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What a good confession! And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Here, in Matthew chapter 16, the name Peter, Petros, is inherent in the text. But in John chapter 1, it's more anticipating this reality. That that Simon, Peter, is a rock. Now, we live post-Reformation, and so I'm not going to get into all of this deeply this morning. But the Catholic Church would argue that what is being said here in Matthew chapter 16 gives credence to papal succession and that the church is built on Peter. And we would say, well, there's disagreement probably here. Um, But but ultimately what we have to see is, is Peter is not always a rock. Peter doesn't always behave the way that he should. Peter doesn't always... Uh, act in a fashion that, that we can trust what's going on. But what we can trust is the confession that he's just given. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's, Peter's confession is a rock. Peter may waver, but his confession doesn't. Jesus is who he says that he is. I, I think there is a right argument. I just want to... I, I, I want to point this out. I think we've talked about it before. The reality is that I do believe there is an indication here of what Jesus is doing is he is pointing back to Peter in his apostolic office and the reality that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Paul tells us this, but the church is built on the apostles and the prophets. So so when we understand in that way, not in papal succession terms, but that we come back to the Word of God and what the Word of God says to understand who Christ is, what what the apostles confess about Jesus is the true identity of Jesus. And that's what Peter has just exclaimed here. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So here we have, back in John, coming back from Matthew chapter 16, we have three disciples— Two of John's who have followed Jesus now. One we know is Andrew. Then he goes and gets his brother, Simon Peter. So we have a net of three disciples following Christ. And then the Bible says in verse 43 that the very next day, turn the page. 
We're, we're at a new day. And the very first thing we're told is that he went to Galilee. Now, we might think that that's a small detail, but it's not a small detail that he goes to Galilee, this, this backwoods country. Uh, to, it's an agrarian culture, society. This is, this is the outskirts of, 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 of that type of, of society. And it's no small detail that, that out of this place, this region of Galilee, that he chooses many of his disciples. The, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. He said to him, follow me. Now, follow me is the primary language of discipleship. We are defined by who we follow. It's interesting that I think, you know, in all of our modern arrogance, thinking that we have grown to know better in our society than what the Bible teaches, it's so interesting that we fall back into revealing the reality that God has created us in such a way that we worship one way or another. And, and, and this, I think, is really it's interesting to me. I was introduced uh, this past week in a, in a really quick fashion to Twitter. I'm not a, a tweeter whatever that platform is called, but <clears throat> through a certain circumstance, I, I, I was encouraged to go on that platform to look up some things, and so I did. And you can follow people on Twitter. And, and, and people will know you by who you follow and what tweets you retweet. And I'm gonna, if I keep going, I'm going to reveal how ignorant I am. I think I already have. Um, but the, but the reality is, we are known in every culture, whether we have an electronic platform or not, by who it is that we follow, by who it is that we align with, by who it is that we agree with, by who it is that will be our teacher. And here Jesus comes and He says to Philip, follow me. That is the same imperative that is put on every one of our lives this morning. That we follow Jesus, that we know Jesus, that we allow our lives to be defined by Christ. Now, I also think it's interesting to realize that on this next day, when Jesus decides to go to Galilee and he finds Philip and he says to him, follow me, do you think Philip understood all that it meant to follow him on that day? I guarantee you he didn't. And so it is in all of our lives, too, that there is a moment that we come to a realization of who Christ is and, and, and the Spirit births us anew and we become a Christian. And aren't you so thankful to remember back to that day that Jesus first saved you, if, if in fact you can remember that day? You didn't know everything that you know today about Jesus, but you did know that He was the one that you could trust and the one on whom all of your eternal hopes lied. And He is the one who is Lord of your life and who has the right to command you to follow Him. When Jesus says to Philip, follow me, it's not a mere suggestion. He is giving a command. And so Peter, excuse me, Philip here obeys. Now, I think that here in this passage, we find these two grand verbs of discipleship. The finding and the following. In, in verse 45, we see Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him 
of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And I think the, the interesting thing, so, so we have the disciples here, and they are finding, being found, and they are following. Those are the realities of what it means to be a disciple. They are being found of Christ, they are following Jesus, and they are finding others that would follow Him. Now the great thing about this entire passage, and and I want you not to just take everything that I say, but I encourage you throughout this week to read through these two stanzas from verse 35 all the way to the end of John chapter 1 and see the reality of the building confession of who Christ is. The great reality that as others continue to be found and to follow Jesus, it becomes clearer to you and I through this text of who Christ really is. Andrew goes and he tells Peter who they found, but he doesn't do that until he finds Peter in the first place. And now, in this particular passage, we find that Philip goes and he finds Nathaniel. There's a lot of finding here. But it's glorious. It's it's interesting, again, to to see the intensification of what they reveal in their findings about the one that they have found. Look at verse 41. Verse 41, when, when, when Andrew finds his own brother, he says to him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. But now here in verse 45, it's intensified. We have found Him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We we have found the Messiah in verse 41. And and then here in verse 45, we have found the one that all of the law and the prophets point to. Jesus is the Messiah in verse 41. He is the one whom all of the promises of the Old Testament find their yes and amen in, in verse 45. Now, can I tell you this? Farewell, Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley is a heretic. Thank you. If you disagree with that statement, see Brian after the service. I won't be seeing Brian after the service because I agree with that wholeheartedly. Uh, he falls in the line of a heretic called, uh, named Martian. Martian was a man early in church history. And here's the reality, friends. There's no, church, there's no heresy that's, that's new under the sun, I find. They, they all tend to find their roots in past heresies. And Martian was a man who, who said, Look, we have in the Old Testament a God who is, is full of, of gory sacrifices and, and, and full of justice and full of... Um, all kinds of really harsh penalties for sin. But in the New Testament, we find Jesus. And, well, He's full of really nice things, grace, truth. Um, And so what we need to do is we need to divide the two Testaments of the canon. And we really, as New Testament believers, only need to pay attention to the New Testament. Well, Andy Stanley, he says it more succinctly. He just says we need to unhitch the Old Testament from the New. Tell that to the early disciples of Jesus. Because when they come making their confessions, the first thing they say is, we found the Messiah, which means Christ, in verse 41. And then in verse 45, they say, this is the one whom all, that all of the Old Testament points to. 
There is no way to unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. It doesn't work. The New Testament doesn't make sense out of its, its being situated in the context of, of the Old Testament. Of the one who would come to save. Jesus is the one who is, has been long promised. The, the, the one that they have found and the, the reason they are finding each other is because this is the one that the Bible ultimately points to. All that the Old Testament says is ultimately found in Christ. And so we should follow no one else. That's what the disciples are communicating to us. This intensifying of who Christ is will become uh, more apparent. But here there's a, a little bit of a plot twist. If we were first century Jews, we would have some, some questions about Philip coming up to us and saying, we've found the Messiah. He's over here in Nazareth. We would say, wait a minute, What? Look at verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can, you, can, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Uh, and again, Galilee was the, the farming community, the back country. If, if Galilee was the back country, then Nazareth was, Nazareth was the backside of the, the, the back country. It was, it was the sticks. It, it, it was the, the place of inconsequential people. It was where all uh, of the folks that, that were part of this agrarian society, that were at the lower system, end of that system, ultimately would be found. And Nathaniel comes and he asks this question, can anyone of consequence come out of a place that's so inconsequential? Uh, can, can the Messiah, the one who is going to sit on the throne of David, you're telling me he's coming from Nazareth? That doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, that, that's a place that is so inconsequential. In everything that's going on politically, Jesus is going to come from there? The Messiah is from, from Nazareth? There's deep, ultimate, Meaning here in what is being asked. When, when, when Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of, of Nazareth? He's not just passing some rhetorical question. He's making a statement of, of theological refutation. He's saying, that can't be true. And what we're going to find out about Nathaniel is this. He is a man who is consumed with the truth. He is one who wants to know what is true. True. He wants to understand the deep, significant things of God. And here he comes against something that brushes against what he would understand to be true. The Messiah is one that we have long anticipated. He will come with massive fanfare, with glory, with troops, with royal pomp, with all of this fantastic fervor. And you're telling me that's going to come out of Nazareth? No way! Our king has to come from somewhere other than the Nazareth. That, this just can't be true. And so Philip does something to his friend that I find to be a very Christian thing to do. He looks at him and he says, come and see. Friends, isn't that the refrain of all of our lives? It should be. 
That as we interact with the lost and dying world, as we interact with people who do not believe that Jesus is the living God, that everything in us wants them to see. Come and see. Philip is not unconvinced at this point. Nathaniel is, is not believing this. And so, so Philip is leaning in and he's saying, look, come on, come, see. See the Savior. See His people. Come and behold His glory. Come and see something in Christ that you could never see in this world. That should be our desire this morning. That, that we would speak into the lives of other people, come and see, succinctly. Come, see something that is completely other than this world, than what you expect and are used to. As I studied this passage out this week, I kept meditating on those words, come and see. And I think in those three words, we find a refutation of every ounce of modern worship theory. And here's my point. This is a little bit of an excursus. Modern worship is built on man and what man wants. And so modern worship paradigms say what we should do is we should make everything on Sunday morning as worldly as we can possibly make it so that the people in the pew will feel comfortable with what is happening and then they will come to know the living God. The problem is that's the exact antithesis of what is happening actually in this verse. Nathaniel is a man who is concerned with truth, but he's concerned with truth at this point in a way that he understands truth according to his natural understanding. Just the way the world works. And what Philip is saying is come, see something that is altogether different. Come and see the Messiah, the Christ, the one who is the, the, the long-awaited promise of all of the Old Testament. Come and see. Modern worship says everything worldly heaped together will somehow be used of God. And what Philip says here is, look, there's something that is more worthy than just worldliness. We should come and see Christ for who He is, not according to what we think He should be revealed as, but according to how He has revealed Himself incarnate. When Christians gather, this is my contention, that it should, be, it should not be like anything of, that we're used to in the world. I don't take that too far. I just think that as we come in and on Sunday morning, we are commanded to sing. We are commanded of God to sing praises to His name. And when people come and gather with LifePoint Baptist Church at 810 Austin Street in the year 2023, they shouldn't walk out of those doors pigeonholing us into some vein of tradition or anything like that. What they should experience is the reality that we are pouring out our hearts before God for who He has revealed Himself to be in our own generation. I, I, the experience should be one of come and see. God is at work in this place. It's not about the pastor. It's not about the, the musicians. It's, it's not about our particular preferences. It's about the living God and what He has accomplished. Again, there's another major shift. In verse 
47. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Is the Messiah really going to come from, from way out there? Philip says, come and see. And then in verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Don't miss the, the, the pivoting between the end of verse 46 and, and what Philip is saying, come and see, and the reality that as Nathaniel is approaching Jesus, before Nathaniel can see Jesus, Jesus sees Nathaniel. It's not Nathaniel that sees first, but Christ. It's a very interesting statement that Jesus makes of him. Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now I think the way that that is rendered by the translators here is, it's okay, I don't want you to lose any trust in, in this rendering, but I think it, 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 it tends to have more of a negative connotation. And I think Jesus is actually speaking more in positive terms. He's saying, look, an Israelite, a man of honesty, a, a man consumed with what is truth, a, a man who, who wants to know the truth of true. And Nathaniel, that, that this is a man consumed with the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And it just so happens that John's already told us in verse 14 that Jesus is the Son of God full of grace and truth. And so Jesus sees Nathaniel first. But Nathaniel is the one who wants to see what is true. He wants his confession to be based on fact, on truth, not on emotionalism, not on subjectivism, not on mere feeling, just what is true. An Israelite who is consumed with the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And then in verse 48, we have this fascinating reality. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus has already, excuse me, John has already told us in, in, in response to Nathaniel's questions, how do you know me? And John has already laid out the backdrop, so as we're reading this, we have to hear John giving us a bit of commentary from verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And so Nathaniel has this question, how did you know me? Well, how did you know me? I formed you, is what Jesus is saying here. I, I knew you before you knew yourself. I've known you from before the foundation of the world. Jesus says, before Philip found you, I knew you. You see, we have this reality of we, we focus on the secondary means because it's what we can see. Uh, when, we, when we look at this text, and let me tell you something, this is a good Southern Baptist text. You can twist this text every which way to contort people into having emotional guilt so that they'll go out and do more witnessing. Friends, I want, I want this text to encourage your heart that you would see who the living God is, that you would, in the power of the Spirit, want to go and find others and tell them about the one that you have found. 
But, but many people will take this particular text and, and they'll contort it in a way that, that ultimately focuses on the secondary means. That is you and I in carrying the gospel. But I think what we see more clearly in John chapter 1 is the reality that Jesus is before all things. Before we go out to witness to our co-worker or to our family member, there is Jesus and He knows all things from the beginning. And not only does He know them in a sense of understanding them, but He has foreordained all things. Jesus knew Nathaniel, when he was still under when he still was under the fig tree. Now we can just gloss over the fig tree if you want this morning, but I don't think that would be a good idea. It has deep messianic significance. Here is Nathaniel under a fig tree. Jesus is nowhere around. It's outside of Jesus' ability to, to in his natural physical being see Nathaniel, but he's seen him there under that fig tree. What is he communicating to Nathaniel? Well, well, the fig tree was ultimately found in a promise in Micah chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. We find these words, he shall judge between many people and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away and shall beat their swords into their plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, un, sit every man under his vine and under his fig, fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has Spoken. What, what is being described here is a national messianic promise that when, that when Christ comes, there will be peace. There, there will be a time when war is put away. Now, and again, I'm not going to dive into all of the eschatological implications of that. We know that we don't live in a world right now that is at peace fully. We know that is going to happen one day. But what, what you have to understand of what Nathaniel is, is hearing when Jesus says, when you were under the fig tree, oh my word, that ties directly back to the Messianic promise. That Nathaniel had to have known this, this reality that every Jew had in their, in their mind. It was a, it was a, a national picture a symbol, an understanding that there will be a day when we can sit under our own fig trees and we can delight in the fruit of our labor and there will be no war, there will be no subjugation, there will be complete and everlasting peace. It's interesting that not only in the biblical record, but this carries all the way forward to more contemporary uh, time. In our nation, George Washington, in fact, in 1790... Uh, was interacting, writing letters back and forth with a group of Jews in Newport. And, and they were wondering what kind of religious liberties they would have in this new American nation. And these are the words that George Washington wrote concerning using the language of fig tree that he understood, that Washington understood, even apart from a New Testament context that this Jewish group of people would understand. He writes, The citizens of the United States of America have a right to applaud themselves. Now, that's an arguable point. 
for having given to mankind examples of an enlarged and liberal policy, a policy worthy of imitation, all, pos all possesses alike liberty of conscience and immunities of citizenship. Now that is fantastic. It is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it were the indulgence of only one class of people that another enjoyed the exercise of their own inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its persecution should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. May the children of the stock of Abraham's who dwell in this land safety under his own vine and his own fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. Newport, George Washington, 1790. Uh, what he is speaking, what Jesus is saying to Nathaniel is a statement of messianic promise and messianic peace. Peace is spoken here. A peace that only the Messiah could bring. And so the question that we have to come to in 2023 is this question for each one of us individually. And that is, have we made peace with God through the person and work of Christ? Or rather, I think the better way the question can be asked is, has God made peace with us through Christ? Have we been reconciled to God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Have we made the good confession? And then we have a huge swing in the text here. Again, I, I think, look at verse 46. Nathanael said to him, to, to Philip, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip says, Come on, let's go see. And, and then Nathanael, and, and then Jesus sees Nathanael, and, and, and they have this interaction. Then look at verse 49. What, what Nathanael says, he answers him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. I think this is so amazing and so overlooked. We have, I think, in the forefront of our minds, Matthew chapter 16, or maybe John chapter 6, because we live after the Reformation, and there's been so much theological rancor and argument about those texts. But here we find in, in, in John a declaration of who Jesus is from the very beginning. In John chapter 6, verses 68 and 69, we find that interaction. Simon Peter, Jesus has asked if, if they're going to go away, and Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. But here, in chapter 1, we have Nathan confessing, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. I think he's answered his question, hasn't he? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? The king can. This is him. This is the Messiah. This is the fulfillment of all of what the Old Testament has said. Again, you have to see the compounding reality and complexity of what is being said in these verses. And if we read them and rip them apart and put them on t-shirts and don't take them together, we'll miss the glory. Look at verse 41. We have found the Messiah, which means... The Christ. Verse 46. No, excuse me. Verse 45. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. 
And then here in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This is the one we found. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the one who is the beginning of all beginnings. That's what Nathaniel, that's what, that's what Philip, that's what John is attesting to. Now we have to understand something about the Gospel of John. It's, it's full of miracles. And this is miraculous. When, when Jesus sees Nathaniel, and he sees Nathaniel first, and, and as he's being introduced, he says, "Yeah, I, I knew you when you were under the fig tree before Philip found you. That's miraculous. I mean, if somebody says to you that was not in your presence when you were somewhere far off, look, I knew you were set in Dallas. I, I knew you when you were sitting under the mesquite tree. Let's not get into the significance of that. Um, but but, but if, that, if, if I said that and didn't know that you had been under a mesquite, that, that's miraculous. And that's what's happening here. There is a miracle. But, but what we need to be very aware of in John's economy of language, and language matters, is that John doesn't use the word miracle very often in his gospel. He uses the word sign. And, and I want to say this with, with all due deference, but there are entire movements that they, they fawn over the miraculous while I think ignoring what is so clear in the Word of God. And what John, and John knows that's the propensity of men, that we seek after miraculous things. What John does is he con- consistently calls these things signs. And he uses the word sign with very specific reason because he wants us to understand that everything that is miraculous is ultimately for a purpose, and that is it is a sign to point back to who Jesus is. And that's why we have this interaction with Nathaniel. The interaction here is to demonstrate exactly what Nathaniel ultimately comes to confess, and that is that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that he is the King of of Israel. Signs point to the identity of Christ. And then we have in this verse 51. I I think you find in verse 50 before I move on. Jesus interacting with this this miracle that has been done, this sign that has been given to Nathaniel, And he says, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? I promise you, you will see greater things than this. There's something better, Nathaniel. I know you seek a sign, and you've been given one. But you're going to see more than even that. And, and, and then here, in, in the first emphatic, the first verily, verily, if you have a King James Bible, the, the first truly, truly, for those of us with a more modern translation, uh, we are taken all the way back to Genesis chapter 28. Why, why don't you turn back there with me this morning, real quick. Genesis chapter 28. Starting in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and went to Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. 
And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall be spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in it you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And, and will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob wrote from his sleep, excuse me, awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone and he put it under his head and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I will go, and will give me bread and to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my Father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. What we have here in Jacob's dream is a dream of the consolation of Israel, of messianic abundance, of the salvation of God's people. You see the angels ascending and descending, of of God dwelling with His people. That is Bethel, God's dwelling place. God being with His people. So don't miss. Look at the end of of chapter 1. And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I am the Bethel. I am the full dwelling of God. I am the fullness of God. And I am here with my my people. It's interesting all throughout this text. I, 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 I don't want to... You may disagree with me on this, and it's fine. But one statement that that comes out of Baptist circles sometimes is we don't have any creed. We don't have any confession. We just believe the Bible. Can Can I tell you a little bit of a problem with that kind of thinking? Most people in the world today that will tell you, I hold to no creed but the Bible, you better buckle up because they're about to shove their creed down your throat. Because we all are creedal people. We've all seen Christ that are in Christ in some form or fashion, and we have a way of expressing that. And and the reality is we can see that all throughout this particular passage. We can see the reality that we are confessional people. Uh, We can see that as we interact with the living God, we use our words to describe who He is to outline what we understand of what the Bible is saying. Now, no confession, no creed, and 
There are some people, just side note, who would say, well, a, a, a confession is okay because it comes from an individual outward, but a, a creed is something that comes from a bunch of theologians and is imposed upon the church, and we don't want any of that. You know, if you drag that kind of thinking through church history, it's going to fall apart pretty quickly because God has given pastors and teachers throughout the centuries that have revealed to us more clearly who Christ is. I think of Athanasius and uh, the apostles and so many people, the, 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 the canons of Dort, and I don't agree with everything there, but, but there have been men who have beheld Christ in their own generation and, and they have expressed that in ways that I find to be helpful. Now, ultimately, we don't live under those things as authorities. Only the Word of God is our final authority. But, but all of that to say this, friends, we are made to be confessional. We are made to, to herald what we believe about who Christ is. Look at verse 41. Look with me again. We found the Messiah, which means the Christ. And in verse 45, we have found Him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And in verse 49, Rabbi, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Even Jesus Himself is confessing in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He's confessing that He has come to dwell with His people. And if we think that's it, John would stand up this morning and say, Don't forget me, I'm still in the back. Verse 21, I was the one that confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ, I'm not the light, I just came to bear witness of the light. And that light has never been overcome by the darkness. He was in the beginning before the beginnings. He is the second member of the Trinity. He is the one through whom all things were made. He is the one who made me to be a witness of Him. And I have declared in my own generation, in verse 29, and to every generation, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Beloved, we are called to a life confessing the goodness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that is what chapter 1 is. You can't read chapter 1 without using confessional language. So may it ever be true of us that we make the good confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the only one who can take away the sin of the world. And might we be people in our own generation who follow Him, who fellowship with Him, and who find others and bring them to Him. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence today. We come in Your presence so thankful that we have been found, that we were found, and that we have come to follow. Father, in light of the realities of John chapter 1 and knowing that the world sits in darkness and knowing that you were before all things and knowing that in your coming into the world we cannot be born anew by the will of the flesh, by the will of man, by blood, but only of God. Father, we come this morning thankful knowing that our following you is, is something that you, you alone have done in us. We're so thankful to come today knowing that 
that you have revealed the glories of Christ to us through these men who have confessed your name. Might we not be silent in our generation because you've not been silent in any generation. Might we continue to herald the good news of the gospel that there are those that you still seek to redeem in our own generation. That though men sit in darkness, you are the light of the world and you've sent your Son into the world to redeem the world through His death, burial, and resurrection. Father, if there's one here today that does not know You, that's never turned in repentance and faith, would You open their eyes? Would You impress upon their hearts the weight of their sin? Might it crush them that they would run to You in repentance and faith? Father, this morning, I'm so thankful that we have a moment just to reflect on the the good gift it is uh, to, to have fathers and to be fathers and how we image you in that role. Father, I'm so thankful for the men in this room who, who Father, stand in the face of a culture that, that denigrates fatherhood, that denigrates manhood, and, and they seek to live day in and day out in obscurity, in a way that would glorify you, in the way they love their wives, in the way they love their children, in the way they care for their grandchildren. Father, this morning I'm also mindful of... of Darren Donovan and Timothy Ambard, two fathers who are, who are deployed right now, who are not able to be with their families. They know that that's a difficult reality on Father's Day to be removed from one's family. And so we pray that you would give them grace. We pray, Father, that you would um, give their families peace and comfort. We pray, Father, that you would give them interaction if that would please you and uh, over the phone, all of those things. And Father, ultimately, we pray for these men that where you have placed them in your providence in these deployments, that they would be used for your honor and your glory, making the good confession that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May it be true in our own lives as well. In 